if it'd be okay with you, if we could just leave this elephant in the room a little while longer, uh, let's get through this message and then let's, uh, let's talk about it. You know, what's interesting is the joy we all know is light and momentary, but sometimes the pain we have to be reminded. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says this light and momentary affliction, whatever it feels like, whatever it is, is just that. It's, it's light and momentary. Um, and our, our decision to leave is the pain is because of the good. It's not because of the bad. And so whatever I feel today and whatever I see around here are people that I've not just known but have become family with. <clears throat> it's, a, it's a special privilege, and that's the pain. So it's the good pain. And so, of course, it'll be fleeting. Um, but that, that's also something that as we look at today's message and as we continue to sort of, I believe, ramp up further into the book of John, we see that Jesus was completely sold out to that idea. That whatever he was feeling and whatever he was going to feel would be light and momentary based on the glory, it says further on in 2 Corinthians, that was being built up as a result of the endurance of that. And so Jesus, we find, is in the garden now. We, we call it the garden. And the problem with this story, Pastor Milton and I were talking about earlier, was a result of you and I growing up in church. If you grew up in church, you saw people, your dad maybe, your uncle, your grandpa, act out this story of Jesus, right? They came into the garden and Jesus was praying. And, and I'm just going to tell you this. I, if you were a part of this church early on, I played Jesus. Yeah, my kids are still messed up about that. We had to stop. It was too weird. Everybody's like, that's just weird, man. So the Easter pageant is a very good thing, but what it's done is reduce the scale of this story. You, you can't have a garden big enough. You can't have a valley deep enough. You can't have a Savior worthy enough. You can't have that. So what we've done is just done the best we could. And as a result, we've taken this story, what we see here, and Jesus walked away this far, right? And the disciples are falling asleep. Well, that's not what happens, right? So we know the scale is so small of what we believe, but the scale was so much bigger. But even bigger than the scale of the garden, of the people, of all these things we're going to look into, was the scale of the power that was inside of Jesus. That's the scale we lose, we lose a scale of the power that lived inside of Jesus that wasn't of himself. He even said that often. He said, I don't do anything that I do not already see the Father doing. So Jesus was just a conduit of the power of God, and we see that here. And so what I'd like us to do is, in any way we can, remove the small scale we've put on the story and let the power and the truth of what it is give us some evidence that demands we make a decision or a verdict. This isn't just here for us to feel that we're a part of something great. It's here to change our lives, and then we would take that truth and change the lives of others. If we look at it any other way, we're diminishing the scale of what's being done. It's a powerful story, and it's our big idea today is this, the evidence demands a verdict. And what a waste of time. If we just came here today and heard a story we'd heard a hundred times, if we don't walk away deciding that whatever we walked in here with 
We were going to look, act, and live differently based on the truth of who Jesus is, not was. And the power, the same power that lived inside of Jesus when he was here on earth is the same power that lives inside of you and me. Let's pray. Father, we walk into this day, we walk into the truth of who you are. And we ask you to reshape it, to move it, to, to let us broaden our borders of what we thought this could be and what it could mean. That we could see it in the scale, but more importantly, in the majesty and in the honor that it is. And that we would not leave this place without rendering a verdict that would change our lives based on the evidence that you have left us, given us, and died for. We invite you here. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're turning to John 18. We've just concluded a powerful prayer, the Lord's Prayer. I think it's the true Lord's Prayer. It's the prayer Jesus prayed for his people, for himself, and for you and me. And, and it's a prayer that the, the Lord's Prayer that we call Lord's Prayers really should be the way to pray prayer. And John 17 is the Lord's Prayer. And as Jesus prayed that prayer, he now is crossing through this valley if you're a history person, if you're somebody who really gets ramped up with the truth and the interesting facts and details, there are some we're going to go over today, but there's numerous facts, numerous interesting historical landmarks and points of interest that could really be riveting if that's your thing. And it's ripe for the picking for you to pull over this and look it over and find out deeper truth. If that's your thing, it's here. John 18, look no further than the Kidron Valley, what that looked like. The Garden of Gethsemane, what that really was. So John 18 says this, after saying these things, Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley with his disciples and entered into a grove of olive trees. Now John's perspective on who Jesus was meant that John sometimes left out some details that other writers and accounts of the Gospels did not, the life of Jesus. And so we're going to turn real quick. It's going to be on your screen to Mark 14, 32 through 34. They went to the olive grove called Gethsemane, and Jesus said, sit here while I go and pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he became deeply troubled and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. This is a new sign. This is a Jesus they hadn't seen. This is not the transfigured Jesus on the mountain. This is the Jesus that is grieved to the point that he is sweating blood. And he said, keep watch. For what? To this point, there's no evidence of what to keep watch of. What are they watching for? But Jesus knew that while he was anguishing, the anguish that he felt was for the mob being formed. Mob. A massive mob on a scale that you and I, unlikely, it would be every one of us if we had some angst against Jesus and we all had a torch and some weapons and we were assembling to go arrest this religious rebel. 
While Jesus was praying in the garden, a faction of people was being formed, armed and given license to arrest by any means necessary the criminal Jesus. These aren't just people. You and I see them as criminals, right? But these are people that Jesus formed before time began. These are people Jesus created. These are people that he gave them jobs to do and tasks to do for them to feel real purpose and meaning. And those are the people that he knows are assembling and coming to arrest him and ultimately kill him. And that makes sense to me why he's grieving. And it makes sense to me why Jesus asked them to keep watch, but the men he asked to keep watch, as you and I know, if you read further into Mark, they fell asleep continually. The Savior of the world is crying to the point of death. He is asking the Father, not out of defiance, but out of pure humility, please take this cup, because I don't think I can actually do what you're asking me to do. And all the while he's praying this prayer, he's asking the cup to be taken, but, but Lord, if it's your will, then I submit to you. And then he walks out, and while he is walking out, there are 1,200 people who he dearly loves, potentially 200 to 1,200 people whom he dearly loves that are ready to arrest him and kill him. So just then, if you've read the story in Mark further, I encourage you to do that later. Jesus, at the third time, finally says, hey, just get up here. The time has come. And so now we see the conversion of this story in Mark and the story of John 18, starting in verse 2. Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, his friends, knew this place, it says in verse 2, because Jesus had often gone there with his disciples. The leading priest and Pharisees had given Judas a contingent. That word again, it's hard to decide. If you break it all the way down, it could mean 200, it could mean 1,200. They'd given him a contingent of Roman soldiers and temple guards to accompany him. Now, with blazing torches, lanterns, and weapons, they arrived at the Olive Grove. Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him, so he stepped forward to meet them. Who are you looking for? Who? It's a silly question. It was a rhetorical question. He knew they would answer, and he knew how he would answer it's the way that he had answered nine other times previous in this account in the book of John. And Jesus stepped forward, and they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus said for the tenth time, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And as Jesus said for the 10th time in the account of the Gospel of John, I am he. A power came through Jesus onto these people. And it says this. As Jesus said, I am he, they all drew back and fell to the ground. Torches blown out, weapons blown around. If they had anything on their head, it was gone. Right there. They're on the ground, they have no idea how they got there, and they're looking down saying, what happened? 
They just said who, they answered his question, and his question, the answer he gave was so powerful, but it wasn't Jesus. John also wrote later in 1 John 4.4, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And as Jesus answered who he was, the truth of who was inside of him came out, and greater is God's power than it was against the power of darkness that was confronting him. And Jesus knocked them all down. Jesus said, I'm in control. Whatever you're about to do, you need to know I could have not allowed this. I could have broken the chains. I could have broken any ropes. And then what's the point? The truth of who Jesus is, the truth of what he did, those people fell down and as they got up, don't you think they had to ask themselves, are we doing the right thing here? Is this okay? Should we be, what did he do? He just said a name, he's so powerful. And yet, all that evidence, personal, first-hand evidence that they experienced, the verdict they came up with was that he needed to be arrested and he needed to die. See, what they were representing, and I think it's very important to understand, is that they were representing the status quo. Jesus was coming and he was disturbing the life they had created, the religious world they had made. And as Jesus walked through their religious world, he continued to break it up, defy what they had said, and shame them for what they believed with their whole heart. And their answer, instead of giving in, following, and submitting, was to arrest him, falsely accuse him, and kill him. And before we get too hasty, I'd ask us to put ourselves through that same filter. What status quo are we holding on to? What thing are we refusing to give up? What thing in our life is yet we're looking at the evidence, we're showing it, we're looking at it, we're examining it, and yet we're coming up with a verdict that we know is wrong. Before we get too hasty on these mob, let's make sure we haven't drawn our Christianity into a mob mentality too. Now, Verse 7 of John 18 says this. Once again, he asked them, who are you looking for? These people are getting up. They're rubbing their faces. They're putting their headpieces on. They're trying to get their torches. Like, is this your knife? I don't know. Is this your? I don't know. Is this your chain? I don't know. But then Jesus didn't just do it again and do it again and do it again. He asked them, who are you looking for? They, they were like, somebody. Somebody was bold enough to go, Jesus, I, they're like, and he's like, no, here you go. Here are my hands, here are my arms. He said, hey, if I'm who you said, it's what he says. They said, Jesus, the Nazarene. He said, I told you that I am he. Jesus said, and once, and since I am the one you want, let these others go. So the disciples scattered. That's a story for another day. We're gonna jump around here a bit because the story of the disciples leaving and Peter is its own thing. But Jesus did this to fulfill his own statement. I did not lose a single one of those you've given me. So now in verse 12 of 18, the soldiers, their commanding officer, and the temple guard arrested Jesus and tied him up. How futile. He just knocked them all down with just simply stating who lived inside of him. And they're like, hey, let's, uh, why don't you double strap that one? 
Anybody got another piece of leather? We need to wrap up another hand. What what could you do that was going to hold him down? But yet they were willing to defy the truth and just keep going with the charade they were living. And so he wrapped up his arms and he submitted and walked alone. And they took him to Annas. He was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest at the time. I'll be honest, as I began to read this, I was very confused as to why they were going to Annas and not Caiaphas. Who is Annas? Who's the father-in-law? Does that matter? That's, I mean, who wants their father-in-law involved in their business? I was like, Caiaphas surely is not happy about this. He's like, who? My father, why are you taking him there? But Annas, history, Annas was the former high priest. And his son-in-law becoming the high priest was sort of a, a sham, sort of a way that he could stay in control. But Annas was also this, the owner basically of the temple. Annas owned the money-changing station, the temple. He owned the money-changing things. He, so the things that Jesus came in and kicked over, got a whip and chased everybody around, that was the people who worked for Annas. That was Annas's operation. And Jesus came in and made Annas look like a fool. And Annas wanted to get revenge, and sure enough, he thought he did. Let me explain to you. Sometimes we're we're uncertain why Jesus was so irate. So the money-changing operation at the temple, so a dove, let's just say, would cost a dime. So you could go buy a dove anywhere for a dime. That might be true now. I don't know. You can go buy a dove for a dime, but there was a racket going in the temple constructed by Annas, that the only approved doves and other animals, but we're using doves, the only approved doves were doves that Annas's people sold. Those were the only doves that you could have approved. So they would take a 10-cent dove in, and the guys would go, oh, it's got a defect. We, that's not worthy to be sacrificed. But if you want to go over to our dove table here, and they would upcharge you to like $20 a dove. Pre-approved doves. I'll tell you what. There's never been a worse racket except when they offer you a credit card on a cruise ship. A worse system, maybe like, well, I guess I could really use one now. Uh, let's just see how long this one works, right? It was a racket. You had people that needed your services and you refused to give it because you were charging them exorbitant amounts of money. So, of course, Jesus was passionate and angry. And he shamed Annas, and Annas now had Jesus bound up in front of him, ready to take revenge, ready to show him who was really boss. John 18, 19 through 24 says this. It's the last passage of this section we'll read today. Inside, the high priest began asking Jesus about his followers and what he'd been teaching them. And Jesus replied, everyone knows what I teach. I've preached regularly in the synagogues and the temple where the people gather. I have not spoken in secret. Why are you asking me this question? They had, in Jewish law, a fifth amendment, basically, They had the ability to plead the fifth. You heard anybody say that, I plead the fifth? Well, that's because you do not have to give evidence or testimony that would incriminate you. And the Jewish law had that. So when Jesus is asking him this, he's asking him an actual legal question. Why are you asking me this? Go find people, go find witnesses that can actually say that I've done something wrong. Because asking me, that's not right, that's not fair. Why are you asking me this? So then, out of nowhere... Then one of the temple guards standing nearby slapped Jesus across the face. Is that any way to answer the high priest, he demanded. Slapped him. Jesus answered him, asked him a question, slapped him across the face. 
But this is what I want to look at right now. Jesus replied, if I said anything wrong, you must prove it. But if I'm speaking the truth, why are you beating me? And it would be very convenient for me and very helpful for me if I could put that question 2,000 some years ago and say that question is only applicable then. But here's the truth. That's a question you and I have to answer every single day. Every time we decide that there's a box in our life that's religion and then there's all this other part that's just every other part, that is a slap in the face of Jesus. Every time that you and I decide that I'm church Jesse and that I'm home Jesse, we're wrecking the gospel in our lives and we're slapping Jesus across the face. There's no other way to look at it. And as much as I'd like to tell this guy who slapped Jesus across the face how horrible he is, the truth is I've done it a million times in my life. Because I'd like it to be this place where I could go where I just have my church friends and I just have my, I can act Christian there, but then there's these other, no, that's a slap in the face. That's where you have Jesus to say, no, if, if what I'm saying is true, why are you beating me? If what I'm saying is true, why are you defying me? If what I'm saying is true, why are you living your life this way that's completely opposite of the way I called you to live? That's the question. The question is not, what did this guy do wrong? The question is, and the only thing that really applies to you and me is, the evidence that we've seen demands a verdict, and what is your verdict? That's the question. This false trial continues. It continues on, and they actually go to Caiaphas' house, can't find any witnesses. They have to conjure the whole thing up. It's a whole ruse. And then they go to this Roman governor's house, which is where we'll pick up next week. And the false things and the lies and the deceit and the irony just keeps continuing and piling up. But where we go now is this, and it's more important. Considering all the evidence, considering all the truth of the things that we know about Jesus, how he lived his life, what he called us to do, what are we going to do with the evidence? Every single one of us in this room is an eternal being question is, where will we spend eternity? And I hate to say it that way, but the truth is, it says in Ephesians 2, we're going to get there in just a second, that we were all dead. We were all dead. So we didn't come out alive and then die. We all came out dead. And as a result of the grace and sacrifice of Jesus, spoiler alert, happens on Easter, we are now alive but we weren't kind of alive. We weren't, I showed up at church and I, no, until we made a commitment to follow Christ, we were dead. So if you're here today and you're, if you're being honest with yourself, your faith is based on a mob mentality Christianity. Showed up, kind of followed people around, did some things. I'm not faulting you. I'm not judging you. I'm asking you today to walk out of here with a clear understanding of what it means. We are eternally separated from God unless we accept the gift of Jesus and we step over the line of not just knowing him, but believing that what he did will move us to do something that matters. So if you're here and you've said, Jesse, the truth is, I don't know. I would tell you, you're not alone. 80% of people who profess to be followers of Jesus cannot verbalize 
their relationship with Jesus. I'm not saying it's not real. I'm saying they have no way to articulate it outside of themselves what Jesus did for them. And if that's the case, I want you to say there's no shame, but let's fix it. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, if you've never known anything else about the Bible, you should learn this passage. We're only going to go through six, but you should pick up at seven all the way through 10. And if you want to know how to verbalize and walk people through what Jesus did in your life, this is the passage. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, Ephesians 2.1. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He's the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature by our very nature, by what we were born with, not what we created, by our very nature. We were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. Listen, there's not a one of us in here that was anything except through Jesus Christ. I don't care if your mother was a nun, your father was a priest. I'm not sure how that all worked out, okay? I don't think that's supposed to happen. I don't care if you were born in a monastery. I don't care if you were born in a convent. I don't care where you were born, who you've been. I don't care if your mom, what did they used to say? That they, the child, they got drugged to church. They, they had a drug problem. They got drugged to church every time it was open. I've just been in church too long that I think that's funny. I really actually do. I don't care if you had a drug problem being drugged to church. What I care about is that have you understood the truth of who Jesus is? Not who he is, but the truth of what it means. And have you accepted that as something not to just know, but to live your life by? That's the question. That's salvation. Jesus came because you had a sin condition you could not fix. And if you've come to him in any other way, you've come to him the wrong way. You have to come to him by faith and by grace. And it says that further on. You were given that gift through grace and by faith. And the faith that you took to accept that grace, God gave that to you too. This is a total God thing for you, not because of you. Jesus loves you. God loves you. But this is all God. You're not an equation in this except the recipient of this grace. Because it says this in verse four, but God so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by God's grace that you've been saved, for he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. There is hope despite your nature. There is hope despite your mistakes. And it wasn't based on you making some good decisions and even by you coming to church today. And even if you got teary-eyed hearing my announcement, I'm sorry, but that will not save you from your sins. The only thing that will save you from your sins is you believing that that gift is real, you receiving it, and you living like you made a decision. That's it. And if you don't, you will spend eternity separate from God, living with the realization that you had a chance and you had a choice and you decided not to do it. And that's the only reality you know except for what God did. And because God sent Jesus, every one of us has a hope. 
If you haven't made that choice, I will be here today. Pastor Milt will be here. Claiborne will be here. If you want to talk about that, I'll give you all the time you need. But what about us? What about those in this room that you're like, man, Jesse, I passed that whole test. If you are a Christ follower, what are you doing with the evidence? Okay, man, you know it. We believe it. But how does your life look different than someone else's? Are you living in the truth of this? Do you see other people through the lens of they were dead, they are dead, and you were also dead, so you're not better, you're just saved, and they need to be saved? When Jesus told his disciples what they could do and how they could become a follower of Jesus, Jesus said this, Matthew 16, 24. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. It's hard to make that about you. It's hard to make your life about you when you're picking up a cross and carrying it daily. And let me tell you what your cross is not. Your cross is not your kids. Your cross is not your husband. Your cross is not your job. Those are ways you show the cross of Jesus Christ that you carry. The way you persevere through incredible difficulty is the way you show the cross. Your job and your life is not the cross. That's, again, making it about you. The way your hand has been dealt and the difficulties in your life, that's the glory of God that's going to show through whether you give him glory or not. So we're too far into this thing, followers of Jesus, to sit back and say, oh, okay, it went bad, it must be bad. No, you and I are not the center post for what's right. We're not the center post for what's good and bad. God is. And when we buy into that, that's when we take up our cross during, despite, and through our difficulties. Because we aren't witnesses by mistake. And the evidence is something to be told, to be championed, and to be the very fabric of everything we do. Every loss, every victory, every failure, and every success is a result of what Jesus Christ has done in us. And that's a story that needs to be told. So if you've got this evidence and you're sitting on it, I'm going to tell you that's not the way it's supposed to go. Because the evidence demands a verdict. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the way that you work in our lives. We thank you for the example of Jesus, that it isn't just a story that we can observe, but it's a way that we can live, not that others would look at us, but that others would know the truth of who you are. I pray in here for the, in this room for those that have never stepped over the line of faith. And I pray they would seize this opportunity today to understand that no matter what they did, what they haven't done, what they want to do, that nothing except the gift that you gave through Jesus is enough. And they would accept that today and they would live in a way that shows the difference in their life. And I pray for those in this room who have followed you. And I pray that you'd continue to burden us with the broken heart for those who are lost. That you'd continue to burden us with the idea that we were not created to exist in this 
selfish existence, but we were created to carry a cross that represents someone else and not us. So as we die to ourselves in our own way, we pray that you would show us the way that we've made it about us, we've made it about our, our interest, and we've made you bend to us when that could never happen. We pray that you'd forgive us of that and you'd give us fresh eyes to see the truth of who you are and how we could put you back at the center of our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you guys so much. Have a great week.